Thank you, Richard and the team. Pray for JT this morning. He's uh, spending the weekend with his family down in Bladen County and worshiping. I think he's with his mama worshiping this morning. I think he was going to end up singing too, wasn't he, or something? I don't know. But um, I think when the Taylors get together, they sing. So um, whether they all want to or not. So, yeah, so, so pray for him. So turn to uh, the book of Revelation for one final time this year. And actually, for the final time in this series, we, we started a year ago in the book of Revelation, and here we are now, uh, some 40 sermons later, if my count is right, 40 or 41. I may have missed one in there when I was looking back through it this morning. Um, it is, it is God's final word to His people here in the New Testament, indeed in all of Scripture. Um, and this is the, the final sermon from it this morning. And um, I've said throughout our study that I encourage you to read this book, and I encourage you to read it out loud. Um, our service this morning is, you know, somewhat abbreviated, if you will, just a little less, you know, with the holiday and, you know, this week and next week coming right on the day after a a holiday, um, and even if it weren't, I don't know that we would, but I would sure like to just read through this book out loud. Just start at chapter 1, verse 1, and read through it aloud in, in our congregation. That's what happened, I believe, when that letter was first received by these seven churches. In each of these seven churches, this letter was simply read out loud. And it tells us in the very beginning that there is a blessing that comes in verse 3, to those who read aloud the words of the prophecy of this book. So I want to encourage you to do that, all right? I want to encourage you to get someplace here at the end of this year by yourself and just read aloud through the book of Revelation. And uh, for once again, as we have sung this morning, just be reminded of this big picture. Jason was was reading to you out of 1 John, and, and I love the way that, that 1 John kind of summarizes that in that passage that Jason was reading there. There at the end where he says, We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And because of that vision that compels our heart, then we're to purify ourselves, we're to walk in holiness before the Lord. Um, so I'm excited to come to the end. Here's what I want to do this morning for just a few minutes. You have an outline in front of you there. And I, and, and I have summarized there um, what I think to be the, the primary themes, if you will, the, the primary focus of, of the book of Revelation. Um, and we'll take some time and, and kind of work our way through those. Um, there is an outline of the book of Revelation in most of your Bibles, if you use a study Bible or if you use a study app of some kind. Uh, and those outlines are going to be different based on different themes or understandings of that, uh, as we have seen all the way through this. The book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book, right? So it's filled with symbols and numbers and signs and creatures and things that are just so difficult to understand. Um, And yet the focus of all of that is pretty clear, all right? So it is an apocalyptic book. It's also a prophetic book, meaning that it's given for us in in the same model of all those Old Testament prophets that are referred to in the book of Revelation. 
Um, and throughout the book, we've said we cannot understand Revelation without, without our feet firmly grounded in the Old Testament. And so it's, it's a prophetic book in the sense of that. But it's also an epistle. It's a letter. It's a letter, as it says in the first part of Revelation. Look in chapter 1. It's a letter that, that's been given to us. <laughs> I love the way this, this kind of plays out there. Um, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And here's the process by which we got this book, all right? It says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. So the revelation of Jesus from God to Christ to an angel, through that angel to John, and from John to us, all right? It's sent with love, all right? It's sent with love. And so this is this epistle that's given to us. So there's this introduction, all right? So the book just starts, as all epistles do, with, a, with an introduction. And I think that entails the first eight verses there. And, and just look, because it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So this one who is Lord over history, as we'll see in just a minute, makes that clear at the beginning and he'll make it clear at the end. And grace and peace are given through this letter and that's what we're to receive. It starts with grace in the end. It ends in the last verse with grace. So this is a, this is a means of grace. It's a picture of grace. It is a gift of grace from God that we would have revelation, that we would have this understanding, this vision of what's coming and how we're to respond to it and live in the meantime. Grace and peace to you, he says. And then to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We said this at our Christmas Eve service. At the first advent, very, very few knew he was coming. Next time, every eye will see him. Every eye. All right? What a, what a promise that is. So there's the introduction. And then I think the next part of the book began there in verse 9 as John kind of gives us his credentials, tells us who he is, where he's at, what he's doing, and the instructions that the Lord gave to him. Write what you see in a book and send it to these seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And that command is coming to him. He hears this voice and he turns and he sees Jesus standing there. And again, in this apocalyptic language, notice how Christ is given there. He, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, coming from Daniel. Here's the prophecy of Daniel being fulfilled. Clothed in a long robe with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. 
I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. That is the Jesus who gives us revelation. That is the Jesus who church wants us to rest in him. That's the promise and that's the picture of who he is. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I hold the keys. No one else. I hold the keys. That's the introduction. And then these letters that come to us, and I'm not going to take the time, obviously, to work through those. We will at the end just for a, just kind of as a point of praise. But here's the, here's the deal. Jesus is present among his churches. That's a timeless truth then and it is now. He walks among us. He sees what's going on, not only in the midst of a congregation, but in the middle of our hearts. He understands that. He sees that. He knows our trials. He knows our triumphs. He knows the opposition we face, the suffering we endure. He knows who we lose in the battle. He commends us. He chastises us. He calls us to be faithful to overcome, and He gives us promises, rewards that are ours, blessings that are ours if we will be overcomers. That's the message to the seven churches. And then we move in chapter 4 into what is the center of the universe, then, now, and forever, and it's the throne room of God. Look at chapter 4. John is given access. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after that. So remember, Revelation, while it spans great lengths of time, indeed all of eternity, John is told, I will show you what is, and what is at the present in John's time is what's going on in those churches in Revelation 2 and 3. But then starting in chapter 4, I will show you what is to come. There's the prophetic part of it the apocalyptic part of it that's being lived out in these amazing visions that comes to John. So he has this vision of the throne room, and there at the center of heaven and earth and all the universe is the sovereign throne of God upon which God sits, rules, and reigns. And everything that transpires in the rest of Revelation flows from that throne. And church, everything that transpires in this world today still flows from that throne. Never lose sight of and never lose confidence in the sovereign control of God. No matter how much things seem to be coming apart at the seams, that same throne still stands and God is still seated on that throne. And he rules over human history. That's the point of the title. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is at the beginning of Revelation. He is at the end. And so he rules over that. And this scroll that's given to this lamb who is standing as though slain in chapter 4, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who is worshipped also, that scroll is human history, I believe. It's redemptive history, sealed up and unsealed, one seal at a time as Jesus unseals it. He is Lord over history. That's what we see there in chapters 4 and all the way, really, all the way through chapter 19 because it includes God's sovereign rule over this fallen, sin-sick world. Then this vision of Christ's return steps in in chapter 19 through 20, where Satan and those who follow him, the beast, the whore of Babylon, the false prophet, the dragon himself are defeated. And then finally the book ends with this vision of new heaven and new earth in chapter 21 and 22, and then this conclusion that we saw last week. So that's kind of the overview of it. But I want us to just focus for a minute on the major themes that I think kind of anchor our souls 
and will help us really keep a big picture understanding of the book of Revelation. You see the first one in your sermon notes. The glorious throne of God and the sovereign hand that rules everything. Everything, church. He rules everything according to his plan. And I believe, again, that scroll is the picture, that symbolic picture of that plan. As that scroll is unsealed, one seal at a time, and then it leads to the trumpets, and then it leads to the bowls, and it leads to this picture of holy God pouring out his wrath and judgment on a sin-sick, fallen, rebellious world, leading up to the recreation, the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so the scroll with the seven seals is redemptive history. And everything that happens, happens according to that scroll, happens according to that plan. And Jesus is Lord over it all. And what's the purpose of it? All right? If that is the plan in that scroll, what is the purpose of it? What is the goal? Well, I think we see that as we summarized a couple of weeks ago in all of Scripture. Because it's the same in the beginning of Scripture as it is in the end of Scripture. And it's the same in the book of Revelation, in the beginning of Revelation, as it is in the end. And I think that's summarized beautifully just in what we see unfolding here in that chapter of 3 and 4. And then again at the end. Think about the beginning. You might not recognize this, but I love this passage. It's not in Genesis, it's in Job. Job helps us see what was transpiring in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Job 38 says, as, as, as God is speaking to Job, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? I'm in chapter 38, verse 4. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. <laughs> or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were the base, uh, or what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the angels sang for joy and praised Him in the process. They were having church around God the Creator. And in the end of Revelation, creation is still praising Him. Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him great and small. And this praise continues in chapter 19 all the way through to the end when the new heavens and the new earth are replaced. But here's what I want you to see in chapters 3 and 4 of Revelation. God is praised for creation. He is praised as the Creator. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worshipped for creation in chapter 4. Christ is worshipped for salvation in chapter 5. This is the plan and the purpose of everything that unfolds, is the praise and glory of God. We broke off from the book of Ephesians, uh, what, almost two years ago now, in March? All right, we broke off. We are going to jump right back into it week after next. We're going to get right back into Ephesians. And one of the things that's crystal clear in the first chapter of Ephesians is that God called us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to the praise of His glorious grace. We're seeing that He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters to the praise of His glorious grace. It's all about His praise and worship. And in chapter 4, as the, the Lamb is worshipped and praised, that's, that's where it's all headed. That's where it's all going. I received in the mail this week a book. It's, it's the latest and I, I think probably the last book that John Piper will, will publish. I don't know. I'm just anticipating that's the case. 
It's a little short book, about 750 pages long, entitled Providence. That's the only title, Providence. It is his ultimate book, I believe. And I've, I've been reading through it in different places, but just listen to this one quote concerning the goal of God's plans and purposes. Because the aim of God in creation and providence is to provide the fullest, clearest, surest display of His greatness and the glory of grace. And that display would be the slaughter of the best thing in the universe in the place of millions of undeserving sinners. The suffering and death of the Lamb of God is history, in history, is the consummate display of the glory of the grace of God. That is why God planned it before the foundation of the world. That is the aim and the work and the wonder of God's pervasive providence. Angels and all the redeemed will sing of the suffering of the Lamb forever and ever. The suffering of the Son of God will never be forgotten. The greatest suffering that ever was will be at the center of our worship and our wonder forever and ever. This is not an afterthought of God. This is the plan from before the foundation of the world. Everything else is subordinate to this plan. Everything else is put in place by God's providence for the sake of this plan. The display of the glory of God's grace, especially in the suffering of the beloved Son, echoing forever in the all-satisfying praises of the redeemed, is the goal of creation and the ultimate aim of all God's works of providence. The sovereign throne of God in chapters three, excuse me, in chapters four and five, where God the creation for creation and the Lamb for his salvation and redemption is worshipped. That's that's where we're headed. Never lose sight of that. All of everything else that we see in Revelation that we can't make sense of comes to at least an understanding that God and Jesus are worthy of our praise for all of the creation. Worship him for that. Second thing I think that's so important to see in the book of Revelation is the ultimate defeat of Satan, all right? The harlot, the beast, the dragon will be forever cast down. Revelation means unveiling, unveiling. And Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that are unseen, right? We have no excuse, Westwood, For the last year, the veil has been being removed and we're seeing this unseen world. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. It reveals an unseen spiritual war that we are engaged in. And indeed, if you will, our God is engaged in. But it's not really a war in the fact that there are casualties being carried out in heaven, if you will. It's already over. It's already over. But we do battle in this. And through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus, the lamb standing as though he has been slain, has conquered Satan, our accuser, our deceiver, the liar. And remember, back in Revelation 12, we saw this symbolized in this amazing picture of this woman given birth and the dragon waiting to devour that male child who would rule with a rod of iron. And, she's, that, and that dragon is waiting to devour this child but he's not successful. The woman is swept up, protected. The child is swept up, protected. And this dragon is cast down. It says in Revelation 12, 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
There's the battle. The dragon couldn't stop the birth. He couldn't devour the child. He's thrown down to earth because of his rebellion. And now the war wages. And this church then and the church today is constantly assaulted by the dragon. We're constantly assaulted with persecution, false teaching, the allure of Babylon, the allure of the world's material affluence, political power and prestige, all that the world has to offer us. All of that is is a tool of the enemy. And so we continue to be assaulted by this dragon. But here's the deal. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, as Martin Luther said, because God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage, we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. And that word is portrayed, that word that will fail him is portrayed in Revelation as that sword coming out of the mouth of our conquering king riding the white horse. And that one little word will fail him. It says in Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. Just let that rest in your mind and in your heart. The Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Amen and amen. Number three, the reversal of the curse. Revelation shows us that. Heaven and earth will be made new. Remember Genesis 3? Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain... You shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Romans 8 tells us that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And it says later on that we know that the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth unto now. Guilt, fighting for survival, working by the toil of our sweat and struggle, sickness, sorrow, death, they burden us, they grieve us, they break our relationships, and they break our hearts. I mean... Donna, you know this. Brian, you know this. Many of us know this. We come into the holiday season and we're finishing up our Christmas preparations and planning funerals because that's the broken, hurting world that we live in. But praise God. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There will be no more tears, no more mourning, no more crying. Joy to the world. 
the Lord has come. Let earth and heaven sing. No more let sins and sorrows mourn or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. The reversal of the curse. Fourthly, the redeemed people of God. This is where it's headed. This is where it's headed, the redeemed people of God. That will include people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. We saw the church of Christ in chapter 1. That's what those seven lampstands were. We saw the church there in Revelation 2 and 3 being addressed by Jesus, being corrected, loved, and rebuked. And now we see this, Christ, this church being assured and comforted throughout world history. We see it being just implored to keep our eyes fixed on the promise that we have, that God is going to be exalted as people from the nations are brought before his throne in worship. The church is assured that the life of the martyrs that has been lost, the blood that has been shed, has not been in vain. Our suffering is not in vain. Those who have loved the Word of God more than they love their lives, they made the right choice. They made the right choice. And we've been commissioned to take this good news of the, to the nations. And we are assured by Revelation 7 Church, we are assured that it will be successful. That's the whole point. Missions is working today, and it will work. It doesn't look like it. Wait a minute, everybody was thrown out of Afghanistan a few months ago. No, they weren't. There's a remnant there. There's faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. The church will flourish in Afghanistan, just as it did a generation ago in China when they thought Christianity had been killed. And lo and behold, the church multiplied and grew in, in ways that historically has never been seen before. Missions is working, and it will work. It'll work its way to the end of the earth, even to those nations that have not yet been reached. And there will be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, clothed in the righteousness of Christ by His grace. Church, never lose sight of that. Never lose it. So let me just give you five points of application, if you will, five concluding, I'll just call them points of application. All right. Here's number one. Praise God, church. I mean, praise Him. Praise Him. There is a pattern for us of prayer and praise in the book of Revelation that it's important that we see this. We talk a lot about praying Scripture. We talk a lot about letting Scripture be the means by which we pray and what guides our prayer time. And that is so clear in the book of Revelation. Let me give you four points, and I'm going to lead us in a brief prayer, just kind of to model that, okay? We praise God for creation. Here's what I was doing later on, earlier this week. I just went through and I looked at these praises, these words of praise, these words of petition, if you will, in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of those where the angels are relating to us, these words of praise. But those words that are directed to God, to the Lamb, that's what I wanted to kind of focus on in my own time. What words in Revelation are prayed, sang, directed back to God? Let's just pray together, all right? Bow your heads, and I'll lead us through this. And then I'll, I'll post this, or I'll, I'll give it to you later on. 
We have this template for praise and prayer. Oh God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for your creation. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We praise you for creation. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your redemption, for your salvation. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Lord, we praise you for your salvation. Father God, we praise you because you reign. We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Lord, thank you that you reign. And God, we praise you because you are holy. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. That's the pattern. That's, that's how Revelation teaches us to pray. All right? I encourage you to follow that pattern. Number two, be assured, church, be assured and comforted. No matter how crazy this broken, sin-sick world gets, be assured and comforted. World history, with all its woes, with all of its disasters, with all of its fires, with all of its famine, with all of its plagues, with all of its sickness, is firmly in control of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is reigning and ruling over it. So be assured of this. All right? Just rest in that. Number three, be warned, church. Be warned and be alert. Because what we see in Revelation, crystal clear, I believe, is this spiritual reality that we are waging war against a foe that is defeated but is not yet done. And it's intense and it's real. Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The whore of Babylon is still just as alluring and beautiful today as she ever has been to those who are being enticed by her. Their end is sure, but it is not yet. So be warned, church, and be aware. Revelation 13.10, here is a call for endurance and faith in the saints. Revelation 18.9, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and you share in her plagues. God has revealed this church, I believe, for our benefit. This perspective should assure us that the fight is not worthless. The fight is not one that in the end will not be worth it. It will be worth it in the end. And it will be intense until then. All right? Our suffering is not wasted, and our plight is not one that we battle alone. So just be aware of that, all right? Be warned and be alert. Fourthly, be humble and let us be diligent in our desire to walk with Christ. 
Let me just, here's what I wrote in my journal this morning. And it was just a prayer, if you will, or just kind of words to myself from the letters to the seven churches. All right? Just back, all right? What did the Lord have to say to them and what did he have to say to me? And, and here's, kind of, here's what I wrote. I'll just read you what I wrote. Don't abandon the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the works you did at the beginning. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. I say this at the end of every year. I, I take time to think through what potentially could go badly in 2022. Now, I don't do that because I'm a pessimist. You, if you know me, you know I'm not that, okay? I'm not a pessimist. But I think it's a healthy thing for us to just think through what could potentially go wrong this next year. Who potentially could not be in this seat at the same time next year or in this house? And I don't do that to burden myself with worry. I do my, that to assure myself of God's promises and to assure myself of his presence and to assure myself that I don't need to be afraid of what I'm about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, he wrote to the church in Smyrna. Don't compromise with the idol-worshiping world around you. Don't compromise. Don't tolerate sexual immorality, regardless of its popularity and its prevalence. Remember what you've heard. Strengthen it, keep it, and repent where you fall. Hold fast. Keep my word. Don't deny my name. Don't be comfortable and complacent. And don't be confident in yourself. The one who conquers will have no fear of the second death, a place in paradise, a new name, new authority, new status, eternal satisfaction, and communion and fellowship with Christ, whom we will see face to face. Be diligent in your walk with Christ, church. And then finally, let's be competent and bold in our witness. Because we know that the Lord is risen and he's victorious, and because we know that the sword coming out of his mouth is the word of God and it will accomplish his purposes, and because we know that we can look forward to the fact that there will be people redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and by the way, those who will redeemed have had their names written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. We saw that over and over in the book of Revelation. And because we know that to be the case, we can be confident. We can be confident and bold as we share the word, as we share our witness, and we can be faithful in that regard because we know God will be faithful to save. Amen? It's not our job to save, but it is our job to speak, share, and take that gospel out. It's our job to pray and to give and to go to that end, doing it with the absolute confidence that God will, God will be faithful to his word and he will save. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that this word in Revelation is trustworthy and true like every other word in your word, every other part of your scripture, God, it's trustworthy and true. And we pray for that word, Lord, now to be seated deeply in the hearts of your saints. Lord, I pray that that word might stir and move through your Holy Spirit's power in the heart of someone that's never trusted in Christ. 
I pray, Lord, that through this word, salvation would come to some. Not just one or two, but Lord, continue to just compel us to go to the nations, these that are unreached, Lord, knowing absolutely confidently, God, that you're going to redeem and save out of that group. Help us be faithful in that, Lord. For that heart this morning that is downtrodden or discouraged, for those that are grieving, Lord, for those that are hurting in different ways, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your presence among us, your power within us and over us, and the promises that compel us to move forward. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Amen.